All right, fellas. If horror movies had achievements, um, what do you think they would be? I'd like you to pick a specific subgenre and let's say two achievements from your genre. You mean like video game achievements? Yes, like video game achievements. Yeah, good call. Okay, so like if you do something specific, you'll get an achievement for those that don't know about video games. <laughs> do you know about video games? You get a controller, you sit down and you play. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so let's see. I think I will go first. And I chose the genre of the religious cult zealot. What do you, What would that be considered? You know, whenever it's always the, the bad guys like a cult or a coven of religious zealot people that's like cult horror yeah cult horror is what i would call it as well okay so I, i'm going with cult horror and uh the two achievements i'm going to highlight on mine uh the first one called the jim baker's dozen you don't know who jim baker is him and his wife tammy Faye in the 80s embezzled and got a lot of money out of people and they went to jail for it so the jim baker's dozen achievement means you have to kill 13 religious zealots because that's also what a baker's dozen is. Ooh. I thought I was clever. I hope you did too. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I'm going to say my last achievement is going to be a very special one that you're going to take a lot of playthroughs. You're going to have to do it several times. Maybe, I don't know, maybe you got to play the movie 10 times in a row for this achievement to pop. But you have to run 26.2 miles. And the achievement is just called 26.2. So our last character has to run that distance for it to pop and uh, I don't know if you're familiar with running 5Ks, but that's that sticker you see on the back of everybody's truck, 26.2. That means they ran in a 5K and they're super proud about it. They want you to know. Okay. But if you're not into running, you have no idea what that means. <laughs> when those started <laughs> popping up, I definitely had to Google it because I was like, what is happening? What, what, what are people putting on their car? I assumed it was something cultish. Turns out it was. It's a humble brag. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Garrett, what do you got? You know, achievements are always an interesting thing in video games. And I don't think they should be any different in horror. So honestly, my achievements have nothing to do with subgenre. They have to do with the mundane bullshit that you get achievements for in video games, like pushing play on the DVD. <laughs> you get an achievement for that. <laughs> or finishing the movie in one sitting, you get an achievement for that. So Mark will never get that achievement. Oh, shit. <laughs> Dude, you just called me out. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there, there were some cool ones I thought of, you know, but um, honestly, like, the the achievements for like doing things that you have to do anyway just to actually even like begin the experience always baffle me and blow my mind. So I was like, I want to do something dumb like that. Achievement started the game. Like, ah, oh, thank you. I feel I feel that achievement. Xbox has an achievement that just says, watch the movie in Hulu or something <laughs> like that. And it's like, oh, come on. <laughs> Are you serious? Yeah. God, that's terrible. Well, I just watched all the Paranormal Activities movies. So I was going to go with the haunted subgenre. And I thought of two. Uh, one is called I'm the One Who Knocks. And you have to confuse your victim five times by knocking sounds. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And then the second one is, why don't you have a seat over there? And it's befriend a child. <laughs> no, fuck that. And be like, get out of my horror movie. So that's the one Garrett would never get because he can't stand children in horror movies. So. <laughs> well, those are pretty good. Well, I think, fellas, we've just unlocked an achievement for ourselves. It says start the fucking podcast. Three guys stop rambling on at the beginning and get going with it. <laughs> Hey, all you creatures from cyberspace. Thanks for joining us on another episode of the Grave Talk podcast. My name is Mark. 
again joined with Garrett and John. Fellas, how we doing on this summer Sunday afternoon? Stupendously. Stupendous. Eh, you know, things are still a trash heap garbage fire in the world right now, but you know, we're, we're making it through one day at a time. Yep, and we're going to take another two hours to forget all that and talk about a movie that we collectively watched. But before that, got anything you want to report? John, you... You buried the lead there and said you watched every single paranormal activity movie. What's wrong with you? John John has low self-esteem and hates his life. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I subjected myself to those seven movies uh, all in the name of content. Uh, so I was going to make a quickie. Uh, I still might. But the gist is three of them are good. The first one. Tokyo Night and the third one and then the other four are trash and you should avoid them and literally do anything else with your time other than watch these movies. Noted. Okay. Uh, I feel like we need to phone a friend here and get our buddy Joyce on the line and see if she's going to back your play on this. I I mean, that would be interesting. There's just the gimmicks are so shitty. Long. If you thought like the first movie, for example, had long stretches of time where nothing happens. They like double or nothing it in the fourth and fifth movie where it's just like, what is happening? Ghost Dimension was a 3D movie and they don't let you forget that the whole movie, uh, even when it's not in 3D. So that's extra annoying. Um, And then uh, I don't even remember what it's called. The one where they're in L.A. Oh, it's uh, the Marks ones. Yeah, the Mark ones. Not a paranormal activity movie, and they didn't even try a little bit to make one, except to just slap some, like half-ass slap some shit in the beginning and the end. Uh, just ugh, thumbs down across the board. Uh, I'm sorry you lost your your time to that endeavor. <laughs> <laughs> Going forward, it sounds like you may never revisit the series as a whole, though. No, I think if I ever wanted to watch it, I would just watch the third one because I really did like that one. Uh, so now my next brainstorm, uh, actually, listeners, anyone who interacts on our social media, tell me if you're interested. I was wondering, maybe I'll rank all the Conjuring Universe films. Yes, I'm I'm saying that needs to happen right now. There's a bigger spread there uh, between good and bad. I don't think they clump up quite like Paranormal Activity does. I don't care what our listeners think. That needs to happen because I'm not sitting through all those and I'm very interested to hear your take on them. All right. Well, uh, I think there's like... 20 so it might be a little bit from when you hear this uh listeners but i will i will do that i think at the bottom of the pile is going to be the stupid nun i'm sure that's the official canonical title <laughs> too the stupid nun <laughs> i watched a movie called the escape room or just escape room from 2019 um this one looked interesting to me i didn't know if it was going to be any good because it looked like it might have been one of them uh teen slasher type movies and it it has like a little bit of hint of that, but it seems I would I would uh, equate it more to a movie like The Cube, or maybe even formulaic like The Saw. Right, you get a group of people going from room to room of traps that could lead to death, and they're trying to get their way out. So I thought this one was pretty good. So if you see it pop up on any type of streaming service, don't hesitate to watch it. It was a pretty good time. It also has Tyler Labine, who we all know as Tucker, or was it Dale? Who's the one with the beard? That's uh, Dale. Yeah, I think it's Dale. Um, so, yeah, Tyler Labine, who played Dale in that movie, uh, he plays a very different character. He's a very kind of a straight-laced father, and he's one of the people trapped trying to play this escape room uh, and make his way out to the end. Also has Deborah Ann Wool, who, guys, if, you, if you've seen the, um, the Daredevil series, that was the, uh, the the female lead in that movie. I can't remember her character's name. but uh, So it's got a couple people you'd recognize. So if you see it out there, check it out. I had a good time with it. Uh, the ending was a little hokey, but it left it open for a sequel. 
So I am slightly interested to see where they take that with the uh, impending sequel. Yeah, nice. So I have been dealing with current events and just kind of struggling with that and the fact that Candyman has been pushed back to, I believe it's July or September, July or August for release in the theater. And as you guys know, we're still in the midst of a pandemic with our numbers increasing, which doesn't bode well for me wanting to sit in a room with a bunch of people. So I'm kind of like, I have a lot of anxiety of whether they're going to release these movies uh, digitally at the same time as they are in the theaters, because we've got New Mutants, we've got Candyman. There's a couple horror movies coming out that I really want to see that have been pushed. And I, I don't know if they've been pushed far enough for a theater experience. Um, so I'm super stoked about Candyman. I'm just really hoping that I get the option to watch it outside of the theater because I'm just not quite sure I'm ready to, to jump back into that nonsense and, you know, potentially deal with the, uh, the fallout of that. But, um, looking forward to Candyman. Also, Mark, they showed the trailer for Resident Evil 8, Mm. The Village. Yes. Which looked Freaking amazing. I'm so excited for it. If anybody's played um, Resident Evil 7, it was basically what if Capcom decided to take Texas Chainsaw Massacre and put it into a Resident Evil um, kind of, you know, feel. Phenomenal game. Scary as shit. The next one takes place years after 7, and it looks like it's going to deliver. But um, other than that, you know, just kind of really, just really excited about a bunch of new movies coming out, but also just really unsure how we're going to get those or when we're going to get those um, to try to to see those and review them in a timely fashion for everybody. Yeah, they did recently announce that Godzilla versus Kong got uh, May 2021 release date, so that one was also pushed. Yeah. So we'll have to wait and see on that um, to see who is the better monster. We know. We all know it's Godzilla, but uh, we'll have to... We'll have to see it for sure in person and confirm the Lizard King's dominance in 2021. You know they're going to do the, the Freddy versus Jason, the Rock versus Statham. You know, they're going to ha- have the whole like, or the Vin Diesel versus Rock. You know, like, none of our characters can lose. Our guy has to win. If he gets a punch, I get a punch. If he gets a kick, I get a kick. You know it's going to stalemate, or they're going to have to, like, combine forces to go and get something bigger, which is a fucking cop-out. And I swear to God, if this movie does not crown... King of the Monsters. The King... And you know, he's got it in his name, King Kong, the winner, then it is a travesty of filmmaking, okay? I'm just going to say it. Audience, you know you know what I'm talking about. Listeners, get on social media, blast the hell out of Mark for being wrong about this. <laughs> mm, or, or praise me for being correct. You know, King of the Monsters <laughs> is there for a reason uh, in his title. Okay, I'm putting it down right now. <laughs> we cannot have this spoiled for us. $20 bet. Because we are not rich men. As you guys know, it costs a lot of money to keep the gravetalk.com running. But 20 bucks right now, Kong comes out the winner. Sure. I'm in. I'm good for that. Okay. All right. You heard it here. It is documented. Ladies and gentlemen, the gauntlet has been set. They're probably going to pull some bullshit. Just like you said, there's not going to be a winner. It's going to be a stalemate. And these movies need to get the balls and actually declare a winner on these things. What fun is a versus movie if no one ever wins the verse? I agree. This is how versus stuff has been uh, for like 50 years since comic books. Uh, so I would not hold your breath on any changes ever happening. Yeah, we'll have to wait till like Mortal Kombat 12 when the secret characters is Godzilla and King Kong and then you can punch each other's brains out. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, unless you guys got something else, let's move into today's movie, which is In Fabric from 2019. 
And this one is sitting at a 92% on Rotten Tomatoes at 149 critic reviews and a 48% with the audience out of 234. Seems like it hasn't been viewed by a lot of people, perhaps. Um, oh, no. I think it has been viewed by a lot of people, and that's why it's sitting at a smooth 48%. Oh, I think Garrett and I feel the same way. The user rating is 234. Normally, these things are in the thousands, you know what I mean? So that's the only reason I say that. Um, so it sounds like you guys didn't like this one very much. Is that what I'm gathering here? Look, if I want to watch a Dario Argento movie, I'll watch a Dario Argento movie. I don't need to sit through whatever the fuck this was. Now, don't get me wrong. There are redeeming qualities. There are parts of this I highly enjoyed. But then there... Oh, my God. I, I'm not even going to get into it right now because we're going to get into it. I had so many problems with this movie. Like, there could have been a good movie here. But holy shit, I did not... It, it did not make itself clear on what it was supposed to be other than the fact that it was like, it's wacky and quirky, get it? And it was like, yeah, no, no, we got it. Now let's get to a fucking storyline. I, Mark, I'm you go ahead and take it, man. I'm so conflicted on this film because there's such like beautiful vision, like like cinematography in this. There's amazing acting. Every actor in this movie killed it. Even the guy who ate the ID card. <laughs> Everyone nailed it. But holy shit, there was I mean, you have to have a plot of some kind in a movie. And this thing was it was someone's dream journal that they put on screen. It was it was baffling. Well, I will say that Garrett is correct. This one is definitely paying homage to the giallo or giallo style of Italian horror movie that uh, kind of permeated in the late 60s and through the 70s with movies like Deep Red and Suspiria and that particular subgenre of horror movies. Um, I thought it did that very well. Uh, being that I just watched Deep Red not that long ago, I was like, oh, this is totally nailing that style of film. Because uh, Deep Red is just as confusing if you're not like 100% dialed into that style of film. So I th I had a lot of fun with it with that aspect. I was like, man, they're doing a, a really good job of this. Um, I think I also agree with you that every actor kills it, particularly the standout actress for me is the woman that played the salon shop uh, clerk. She was so weird, and I loved her portrayal of that weird character so much. Also, I want to give a shout-out to the soundtrack. I was really enjoying the weird synthy, strange um, um, undertones that that was producing in the movie as well. I think, Gary, like you said, Dream State, it definitely helps lend itself to that as well. If I had to put a structure on this film, I would say that it's broken into two parts. We've got our uh, story A dealing with the woman that buys the dress, and story B is where the dress ends up in the new owner's hands, and we'll get into that in just a second. So that's how I kind of saw the structure. You're right. You're kind of like, what is going on with this dress exactly? What's going on with this particular dress shop, right? It, it never quite made itself clear, but I think that was part of the, for me, that was part of the fun of it, is just trying to decode what the hell this is. That's that's pretty accurate. I mean, again, well, the people I watched this with, because I always watch these movies with like people around, and um, you know, some of them loved it. Some of them were just kind of on the same wavelength as me. Is like, what the fuck? Like, why? That's that was the frustrating part of this movie for me. Is like there was stuff there that I was heavily invested in, and then it was just like, you know, it'd be fun if we just did this and derailed our entire plot line over to this direction. And it was like, no, go back. Like, I have to. I have to have something to follow. And it just, it was like a fever dream. They just couldn't find its right pacing. And you said it like it feels like two different movies. It legitimately is two different movies. Like we switch all characters at one point in the middle of the film. 
And then we go to a whole different storyline, which while the dress carries on, there's no other like direct hook or plot line that connects them. And I'm like, why did we need to do this then? It's not the first time this has happened. You know, I, I, I can't recall any immediate examples, but there has been a few movies that have done this, right? It's like, oh, I got one. Uh, how about Death Proof? Oh, okay, yeah. There's a good example of like, you get to know all these characters and then halfway through we switch to a whole new crew. So I, I would say it's definitely that same feel. Um, I will say that I enjoyed the first half of this movie far more than the second half. Did you guys kind of feel the same way whenever it did switch to that B storyline? I liked Sheila, so I think that's her name. So I, it was sad when she left, but um, I don't know. I I don't think these type of horror movies are for me. I don't know that it was really tremendously horrific. And also, it's everywhere I've seen it listed as a horror comedy, and I definitely didn't understand that. I don't find it. I didn't find any humor really in it. Uh, a bizarrity, I guess. Like, uh, but I don't know. I don't think these types of movies are for me. I didn't like Suspiria either, though. So uh, at least I'm consistent. See, the thing is, John is like, I I saw that too. It said like horror comedy or comedy horror, and I was like, well, again, we we may just be tacking on a a word when people don't quite understand something, and they're like, oh no, it's because it's funny. You don't get it. But this movie legitimately had humorous beats and characters like the bosses who I thought were like the uh, the bobs from uh, Office Space. It's like, what would you say you do here? And it's like, those guys were hilarious. The shopkeeper, at first, I could not stand her. And then the more that like she committed to that like riddly like dialogue, I was like, oh, I get it. Okay, I get it. Like, she became a lot more humorous to me. But then they cut to like, the old man like scissor choking someone in the store or like they'd have like that was funny actually <laughs> i did like when the store like just out of nowhere there was two old ladies just fighting on the floor that i did laugh at yeah that was like the old man shopkeeper like like scissor like choking out one of the customers and i was like <laughs> wait a minute what the fuck and so like the second half of this movie felt a lot more humorous than the first but that was like, like kind of bugged me about the first is the first half of this movie is fucking bizarre and i was on board for it except for the fact that it was very long it was like two hours long but um like i was okay with like the first half but then it didn't pay off and then we switched to this more light-hearted kind of like goofy romp hmm. and i was like i just i was sitting there, I was like are we going to resolve the first part of the story and i kept thinking like okay we're using new characters to resolve like the dress issue, which is going to explain what happened in the first one. We never do that. So again, it was like this, like it's almost like a Freud theory. <laughs> like if Freud was trying to explain filmmaking in his own weird way, and this is what they did. It's so bizarre. And I, I know I'm rambling here and I'm sorry, I'll, I'll cut it short, but it's just like there was so much to grab onto and then you're stuck hanging the entire length of the film. And then it ends and you're like, I think you guys were going for that, but why did I, what was the point? Like, why did I need to be here for this? Well, just to address the uh, the lack of humor you guys did not see in the film, I think you're going to find that a lot of what maybe wasn't clear to you was like this European style of humor. I don't know how much like British TV or, or anything you guys watch or John, I don't know if you uh, dive into a lot of that stuff. Um, but to me, a lot of that seemed like something that the Europeans would find funny. Um, for instance, the woman behind the counter at the dress shop, Ms. Luckmore, the way she speaks is overly elegant and overly wordy for almost wordy's sake. And I think that could come off humorous. Like, for instance, here's a line she says in the movie. A purchase on a horizon, a panoply of temptation. 
Can a curious soul desist? I'm just looking, thank you. The hesitation in your voice soon to be an echo in the recesses of the spheres of retail. Did the transaction validate your paradigm of consumerism, right? So that was like, did I do a good job here uh, when you were shopping at the store is basically what she's saying in such a bizarre way. And she talks like that through the entirety of the movie. So I found that humorous to me, like listening to her speak like that. Oh, yeah. No, it definitely was. Yeah. And then halfway through the movie, whenever we get to story B, whenever they make the guy wear the dress and it's like his stag party and then the way that they're just kind of all picking on him, I think that could be construed as like, you know, some sort of alpha male humor. Um, there was some humorous bits in there. And, and like, I think that's where they... That's why they put that comedy label on it. Oh, yeah, 100%. Also, when you said whenever they're doing the uh, the fighting at the end, when they all just start looting the store once it sets on fire, it's like, oh, pff, that's funny, too. So I, I can see why it's on there. But again, like, you know, like I said, you know, there's there was a lot of stuff that was really funny in this, you know, the way and I mean, we'll get to all this. But the way when he talks about washing machine stuff, everyone starts fucking orgasming the way that, you know, the bosses are like, tell us about your dream. You can tell us we'll do role playing scenario. The the uh, the ladies behind the counter talking the way they did. I mean, there was so much stuff here that was humorous. And it, you're right. It was a very, you know, like European British type humor or, um, you know, wherever this was. But like, I, I got all that. But again, though, like the first half of this movie, and I don't know if this is what you experienced, John, but the first half of this movie takes itself pretty serious. Yeah, I didn't like the tonal shift. I felt really bad for Sheila and I was really bought into this person and this older woman like trying to reestablish her life in this bizarre universe that I just could not find humor when they wanted me to laugh. I mean, it just felt like... They felt like they abandoned her. Yeah, they definitely did. And because the whole universe of the film was so bizarre, like I didn't know if it was meant to be funny or if it was meant to just exhibit how strange everything is in this town or country or whatever i don't know this you this film universe um i don't know i felt like i wasn't in the right mindset to laugh at the second half of this film because of how sad i found the first half of the film all right with all that being said let me tell you who's in this one um this one was directed by peter strickland and it stars sidzy babbitt nutson as jill marianne john Baptiste as sheila julian barat as stash Steve Oram as Clive, Jagan Aya as Vince, Richard Bremer as Mr. Lundy, Fatma Mohammed as Ms. Luckmore, and Gwendolyn Christie as Gwen. Well, Gwendolyn Christie was Brianna Tarth from Game of Thrones, dude. I don't know if you got that, but that was her. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. As soon as I saw her, I was like, that look, that lady looks super familiar. And then sure enough, I was like, if I put blonde on hair on her, that'd be Brianne for sure. Yeah, everyone who else watched it caught that. And I was like, I don't know. And they were like, I like put my hand up to like cover her hair. And I was like, holy shit, it is. Okay, here was what the back of the Blu-ray has to say about In Fabric. From acclaimed director Peter Strickland comes a truly nightmarish story of a lonely woman recently separated from her husband who visits a bewitching Thames Valley department store for a dress that will transform her life. She is fitted with a flattering artery red gown, which in time will unleash a malevolent curse and unstoppable evil, threatening everyone in its path. Wait, is that it? That's it. Oh, wow. I mean, that's... If, if only the movie could have been that tight. <laughs> <laughs> right? 
The movie starts off with um, we reveal a box being open to show off the red dress that's going to connect this whole plot line throughout. And it's it, it's revealed in such a manner, right? There's also like this weird ritual going on while it's being opened. Is that correct? Yeah, it looks like some kind of like cult phenomenon. But is this what's going on during the credits or is this happening before the credits? I thought this was during the credits. Yeah, because the movie like like it, it runs through the credits and there's these like still frame shots of all this different stuff of people screaming and things happening. And I was watching the credits and I was like, are these just like stills from this movie we're about to watch? And sure enough, it was like we definitely have like this kind of 70s filmmaking thing going on here. We see this dress being made and this like ritual stuff and it looks like this like weird department store. And it's like it's all still frames is like this. Like you said, it's very haunting kind of like uh, I don't know the exact word to describe it, but like like the soundtrack's very good. Like the soundtrack's very complimentary to everything that's happening. But um, yeah, the opening happens, and then we smash cut right to the house where a woman goes and answers the phone. And do you guys answer the phone like this, where you're like, oh one six three two nine six zero oh, seven eight six? Who does that? And they do that through the entire movie. It was like a running gag, which I did kind of find funny. It reminded me of the IT crowd. It was like, oh, nine, one, nine, one, five, five, oh, six. <laughs> it was like, I kept every time they'd like say the number, I like would hear that in my head. So that like cracked me up. Yeah, that was strange. Um, I don't know if that's like a British custom. I mean, I've, I've never call, made a phone call in the UK, but uh, no, I definitely don't answer and then just give out my phone number. <laughs> then we get to meet uh, Sheila who has a son named Vincent and Vincent's like, he looks like he's 20 something, but evidently like if you look at the tests he's taking, that's high school tests. So he's like in high school or something like that. It seemed like I thought he was like in university. Well, he's, he's also like an art student, right? He's, I think maybe he's a art major, but you really think he was in high school. I just assume he was like in early college or something. See, I thought he was early college too, but like, you know, the test that they were talking about made it sound like it was like what you have to pass to get out of high school. And I was like, like an SAT almost. And I was like, is this dude in high school? Well, let's just say if he is in high school, dude, he's fucking Gwendolyn Christie's character who is not even close to his age, which would make that even all the more worse. And and she's letting it go on in her house. Sheila is. So, well, that's the thing is like, yeah, because uh, Gwendolyn Christie's character uh, Gwen is um, arguably late 30s, and the mom later on in the movie finds a book called How to Flirt with Older Women, and like so, the son's clearly like dating an older woman, and she's very weirdly kind of not the mom, but Gwen's like very weirdly kind of like not predatory, but like just very like why is she fucking around with this like younger kid, and she's power playing the mom there's this whole thing where like sheila and gwen are kind of like butting heads over vincent um so there's a lot of really good character development between this and you find out that um sheila's divorced and her ex-husband is starting to date again and i guess she thought maybe they could get back together but she finds out through her son that he's got a new girlfriend so we kind of start on this subplot of her wanting to get back out there as john alluded to earlier and so she's like looking through like singles ads and she works at a bank. Is it a bank that she works at? Sheila is a bank teller. Sheila is a bank teller. <laughs> anyway. 
Okay, yeah. So she definitely works at a bank. And so we we get a little glimpse into her life. And um, I'm I'm burning through a lot of this because it's like a lot of this like really slow kind of character development, but it's really well done. She sees Gwen staying over. Again, there's like this, there's this, this, this hostility between the two. She hears Gwen and Vincent in the room doing something and we don't know what it is, but the mom goes and peeks through the door crack and sees her son like going down on Gwen and just going for it. And she lingers for a long time. Yeah, I, and Gwen, Gwen even sees her, right, peeping through the keyhole. So she starts, like, really raising up the theatrics of the, the orgasm, I think, just to really nail it home. Like, she's like, I got you watching me, you know what I mean? Yeah, that was that was definitely, like, we were all, like, sitting there kind of looking around at each other, like, okay, so we just saw that, right? That, that totally happened. <laughs> it's like, what a weird, weird situation. It was so bizarre. And I think, like, that is a good example of like this movie's not setting me up to laugh i just like after watching that like it's just like i don't know i don't i don't know what they were thinking with the, the tonal shifts in this movie that see that's exactly right like the first half of this movie is this very dramatic kind of like thought-provoking like you get into the mentality of sheila's character you get into this like this struggle of uh, I don't. I hate to call her an older woman, but she's an older woman. Um, you know, dealing with all this transition and all this change, and then this external force of the dress, which we'll get to in just a second. And we get all that, and there are some some lighthearted moments, as with any horror film. You know, we get a few moments to kind of bring some levity, but everything about it is so intense. And then when the second half of that movie shifts to this, is kind of like fucking like. Back on BBC Two, you know, like the comedy channel. You're just like, what the fuck, dude? Um, yeah, so she goes to this uh, department store, Stearns and Bigsby. I don't know what the, the second name was. Dentley's, Dentley and Soapers. Yes, okay, that's what it was. And they have the rowdiest commercials on TV. Like, because she's at home and sees this like sale advertisement that looks like it's from 1965, like laugh-in type shit. And they show the whole commercial. Like on the screen, it was like, why are we watching this? But um, so she goes to this department store and that's where she meets Mark's favorite character and also Alex's favorite character. The um, the head, I don't, she's not the shopkeeper, but like what would we call her? The the head um, department clerk? The sales associate. Yeah. And she speaks in the weirdest damn riddles you've ever heard. And at first I really didn't like that. I was like, okay, this is... I get it. You think you're clever, but I'll be honest, after like the third time she did it, it was like, "Oh, this is this is who she is. She's not putting on an act." It felt so comfortable and funny after that. I really appreciated the fact that they stuck with that whole thing throughout the entirety of the film. Yeah, they really committed to that character. Um, I'll give you a couple more lines just so the listeners can know just how bizarre she is. Dimensions and proportions transcend the prisms of our measurements. And then she also says, the hesitation in your voice soon to be an echo in the recess of the spheres of retail. It's just like, what? Like, you really got to think about what she's meaning because it's so wordy. It's almost unhinging. It's almost unarming, but also kind of like it throws you off a little bit. Like, you can't get a read on her, which honestly, they keep up through the whole movie, which was great. But again, does... And maybe I missed it. And John... Maybe you picked it up or maybe Mark picked it up. Did we ever understand what the fuck she was or what was going on with their their whole operation? I mean, the end showed some of it, I guess. But no, I mean, it was never like explained like, oh, here's 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 from A to Z. 
the whole story. Let me tell you what I think is going on, if I can. Okay, lay it on us. So we, we see scenes of Mrs. Luckworth. She's sitting in a room full of mannequins, and she takes her hair off all in one piece. So right from that moment, I started to assume that everybody worked at this shop was a living mannequin. And the reason I think that also... Like that Twilight Zone episode. Right. Now, I also think this is true because whenever halfway into Sheila's story, they decide to have some weird fucking old man jack off to a mannequin with an actual vagina and it starts bleeding. And I was like, what the fuck is this scene right here? I think they were birthing another living mannequin. That's what I took away from that. Oh. Hold on. Let's touch on that scene because they he doesn't just jerk off to a mannequin with a vagina. What happens is, is after Stearns and Bronson is closed, um, they go back into this the, the, like little underground warehouse area. They lay a mannequin down on the ground. And it's a full mannequin without a vagina at that point. One of the the shop ladies with the the one piece wigs who looks like mom from um, (laughs) Futurama to bring that back um, sits down on top of the face of the mannequin and starts grinding like just full on grinding. Another one of the shop ladies goes down and starts like caressing like the crotch area of this mannequin and like sensually rubbing it all over. And then the old guy who looks like the food critic from Ratatouille, like, peeks over this like ledge at them and then just starts jerking it hard. And as he's like getting closer to getting off, this mannequin suddenly has a vagina that starts bleeding and it looks like a, like a toaster pastry that's been squished. It's not even like, (laughs) it's not even bleeding like realistically. It just looks like someone like squeezed a red Twinkie and was like, what the fuck dude? And then it cuts away. They never explain any of that. So you're saying they're birthing another mannequin person that was my takeaway because when he's done he flings his cum on the mannequin as if like be born you know what i mean like that was the last spice to the cooking recipe to make that thing come alive is that how you think babies are made bark (laughs) because i gotta tell you something man as far as i know that's exactly how people are made okay (laughs) be born this is the birth of life the miracle of life the documentary that we all watched in high school this is it Close enough. Uh, but yeah, that's that's kind of what that's how I took away from it, and and I do agree with both of your criticisms of the quote unquote comedy of the film because still up to this point, this is a real what the fuck movie. Yeah. And this exemplifies that feeling. You know what I mean? On top of just Sheila's demise at the end of her story, if I were to fix this movie. What I would do is I would start the movie with a shorter intro and it would be centered around the woman who poses for the dress in the catalog. Do a focus on her for like 10 minutes. You guys remember the remake of Friday the 13th where we had a, a, a bunch of campers that die yeah, of course. off the bat and then we move into our second loaded uh, camper story. I would do it real short, kind of like that. Mm-hmm. Then we move into Sheila's uh, story and I would remove the washing repairman part and his fiance all together but the end of the movie would end with Sheila going back to the store and doing what the other woman does when the store is on fire and all that and that's how I would fix this movie I I can kind of get on board with that except for the fact that I don't see Sheila ever acting the way the second um the second girl did the washing repairman's like fiance so I kind of think like I would keep that there. But what I would do, though, is I would change the tone back to very suspenseful horror with a tad bit of comedy. 
because literally it feels like a comedy and a horror movie mashed together, but not even like mixed. Like you just laid it on top of one another. Let's let's talk briefly about the shop itself and what I saw that shop as. Right. So to me, the shop represents that um, that that mysterious store that would pop up in the middle of the town and there'd be all these magical items that one could go in and select. Think like. Uh, you know how all those tales open up where someone goes and buys the monkey paw or the magical item that will curse them throughout the movie. That's what this shop basically represents to me. So you think everything in the shop is magical? I was hoping that that was the case, but we never saw any evidence of that, right? Because everybody's shopping there in all of London, for all I know. Yeah. And we're only seeing one side of it. Yeah, it's very popular because like every meeting of people, they're like, do you get anything good in the sale? What'd you get in the sale? That's like a common, apparently a greeting in this uh, in this movie. So uh, it would be amazing if every one of those people bought something magical by mistake. Yeah, I would hope that was the case, but perhaps this store just really zeroes in on one victim at a time. So there's only one dress in there, and Sheila just made the bad choice, kind of like at the end of Last Crusade. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, are you trying to say they they had to, they made a they made a crazy like uh, supernatural dress, and so they had to make an entire shop and a bunch of other dresses just to kind of surround it so it wouldn't look awkward? You think that that Stearns and Brigsby is basically just a giant ruse to kind of like cover up for this one demonic dress, or or that's the only one? Maybe they just need the one victim per. Um, to keep the kills going. I don't know. I'm just, this is all headcanon at this point, guys. This is not explained anywhere in the movie. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm saying it's like the Holy Grail at the end of Indiana Jones. She chose poorly. She picked the one dress that sucks. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's, that's definitely the way it felt. It was like there was one cursed dress in this place. But then... It's so weird because like there was people lining up outside the door at like what seemed like midnight trying to get in. Um, they would all walk down the, the front steps. The, all the the mannequin like um, sales clerks would do these weird hand gestures, let everybody in, and they'd go crazy. It was like it was. It felt like Black Friday sales. But then, yeah, Sheila just goes in, finds this red dress. She's like, "Oh, I don't think it's my size." And then you know, Beehive Betty is all like, "Ah, the mystery of the dance. Go forth, let it simmer on the trachea." You're like, "What the fuck, dude?" So she puts the dress on. It totally looks awesome. She looked amazing in that dress. The dress is fantastic, by the way. So Sheila goes and gets this red dress. She goes on a date with the first uh, suitor, who is a real piece of work. <laughs> like this guy, like. He, he walks up and he's all like, hi, are you number one, two, four, five, six? And she's like, yes. And he's like, I got coupons for pudding. <laughs> Can I? And then he sits down. It, the date's a nightmare. It's an absolute nightmare. So um, she ends up going home. She has more interactions between Gwen and uh, Vincent. She doesn't give up. She goes to work. Her bosses are being completely like irrational. Like what was the, about the bathroom thing? They like add up how much like a minute of bathroom break takes over a year. And then she like counters with the She comes there to work like 10 minutes early. It's just this baffling. Like you think that she's being oppressed of some kind. Like, like there's some force out to get her. She goes on a second date and she really hits it off with this guy who also leads with putting coupons for their dinner. And at that point, he starts becoming a regular character in the mix of everything. And now, has the dress done anything at this point? Because we start to hear noises from her 
closet where it's like sounds like the dress is scraping around inside the closet but is, has it attacked Gwen yet? No but it has the it, it uh, the first night she wears it when she wakes up she has a rash. Oh that's right she's got some rash on her body. You're right and that's the first strange thing that we see the next thing she does with the dress is she washes it and then it fucks up her washing machine it, like the machine goes crazy. Yeah like the washing machine and this was like and this is where the like the movie started to really pick up for me because um, she washes the machine it starts going on this like crazy spin cycle to where it's like about to, it sounds like a jet engine. They go in there, Vincent, her go into the room with the washing machine. He's like, unplug it. She unplugs it. It's still going. Like it doesn't stop. And then it smashes her hand against the wall and I guess breaks her hand. And she's like bleeding everywhere. And, and I mean, I guess that's a good like warning that if it says dry clean only, just dry clean only. I mean, that's, it's a safety precaution. May result in injury otherwise. <laughs> we have this giant like horror thing that's going on where this dress is like clearly capable of supernatural whatever. And then everyone goes about their lives as if nothing happened. And I was like, what the fuck? I think from their perspective, they didn't piece together that it kept going after they unplugged it. They probably thought it was the momentum. Because we don't, it it ultimately, after she hurts her hand, it just fades to black. So we don't know how long it kept going. But my headcanon is it, they thought, oh, it just, after she unplugged it, it was just already going so fast. It took a long time to slow down. Well, there's a, there's a point where Vincent says unplug it. And she's like, I did already. And like, I thought, oh, okay, cool. They, they're, they're tuned in on the fact that it's unplugged and it's still going. But yeah, maybe you're right on that. So anyway, she fucks up her hand. She goes on another date. She meets, um, I think this guy's name is Zach, um, an older gentleman who's just a delight. He's a real nice guy. Um, and they're walking around and they're 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 dating at this point. And then the, the progression of the story moves on. And a dog sees her in the red dress and the dog attacks the dress, like just full on dog attack. She's on the ground. She's getting bit. The dress is getting shredded. They're trying to get the dog off. And then, um, well, so this was confusing to me because was she getting bit? I think the dog was just attacking the dress, but the dress was like physically injuring her. But the dog, I don't think actually bit Sheila. I think it had just globbed onto the dress. Yeah, it was to, to me. I definitely took away that the dogs, uh, was going directly for the dress, not Sheila. You know what I mean? That was, uh. It could sense the evil, so it was trying to get it, that kind of thing. I think it was biting the dress and also biting her leg in the process, too. I think it was kind of getting a bit of both, because they put the dog down. And the next scene, we find out her bosses yeah, that was sad. at work are like, hey, are you okay? We heard what happened. Uh, we went ahead and put the dog down, and it was like, what the fuck, dude? Like, that's crazy. Even if it didn't successfully bite her, I mean, they would still put that dog down, because, I mean, it just... I mean, one, as usual, it's the owner's fault. Should have had that dog on a leash. But two, uh, you if a dog just attacks somebody like that, they would definitely put it down, even if it didn't, like, draw blood. And I, I don't know if it's before she goes to work and finds out the dog's been put down, but, like, she's in bed, and Vincent comes in and was like, oh, hey, here's your dress. And she's like, what are you talking about? That dress is, like, shredded. It's It's garbage now it's in ruins and he's like no it looks perfect the dress is completely a-okay at this point um this is where we find out that sheila is like okay something's the fuck up with this dress like she's now like aware that there's some bullshit so she tries to take it back to the shop um grigsby and burns like she takes it in and then the 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 head clerk lady 
like tells her that she can't return it. And that's where we find out about the model who was killed at a zebra crossing in the dress. Yeah, that was weird. Uh, I didn't, I guess like, yeah, she brought it back. She wanted a bigger size. And then they were like, no, this only comes in. There's only one of these dresses. The previous model died. Uh, but don't worry. We cleaned it really well is what the sales lady tells her. Oof, I don't know that I want to know that. Uh, th- I think this is where she tries to return it, right? She's like, just give me my money back. And she's like, sorry, no. Okay, what about store credit? She's like, nah, not going to happen. The dress is like, picked you. She's like, well, can I just give it to you? And the sales lady was still like, nah, it's your problem now, bro. Yeah, she goes, the, the clerk lady goes to check with uh, the old man, the old man Ratatouille, like, to like, hey, she wants to return this. And then they're having like this weird little like, Every interaction this woman has with anybody and that old man is creepy and weird. But like while they're talking, uh, Sheila goes to the cabinet and starts looking through the catalog and sees the model who was in the dress. And then she's like, oh, my God. And then the like clerk lady comes up, tries to turn the page, like, don't look at this woman. And she's like, what are you doing? And like, she's like, you can't you can't be doing this. And then she's like, that woman got killed in this dress. But don't worry, we cleaned it. And it's like, what the <laughs> yeah. fuck? But then later on, Sheila's looking up the history of this and finds out that woman was killed in a zebra crossing, which I guess they have those in Britain, maybe? I think that's what they call crosswalks in Britain. Oh, you think so? Because it's black and white with the street versus the, the paint. I'm pretty sure that's what they call crosswalks. Oh, I legitimately thought she was trampled by zebras. <laughs> Your way's way better though. So my head cannon is now that she got ran over by zebras. I thought she got like run over at a zebra crossing. This has been your Garrett doesn't understand other cultures moment. <laughs> I swear to God, I was from that moment on. I was like, okay, I get the comedy aspect of this movie, but why? What's the point? Zebras, <laughs> and then um. <laughs> okay, man, I feel like an idiot now. It's like Ace Ventura's off screen laughing. <laughs> But yeah, so at this point, it's full on. It, it the movie just kind of like continues on this like breakneck pace of like, oh my god, shit's getting nuts for for Sheila. So after she tries to return it, she's gonna go donate it to like the um the the resale shops. So she's got it in the back of her car, and she's driving to go see Zach, um, her boyfriend. And I guess he lives out in the country and she's driving. And this part fucked me up. This was like definitely one of the scariest parts of the movie. Oh, earlier we, we glossed over at some point, the dress floats through the air and attacks Gwen while Vincent's going down on her with a vibrator and Gwen freaks out and loses her shit. And uh, the dress like scurries back underneath the door back into the closet. But anyway, that was previous. So the, the dress has been established as having supernatural powers. So, Sheila's driving down her car, like Radiohead, like, you know, Karma Police style. It's dark. She could barely see anything. And then as she's driving, she passes into, like, the thickets next to her. She sees one of the mannequins from the store in the uh, the brush. That fucked me up so hard. Like, honestly, like, <laughs> it made me... That definitely got me in the movie. And she's freaking out, and then she slams on the gas, like, fuck this, I'm out of here. And as she's driving through this kind of, like, windy street, uh, one of the mannequins is in the middle of the road. She swerves to miss it, hits a tree, goes flying through the window, and then dies, I guess, right? Yep. Yeah. That was sad. And did you mention that the dress was, like, floating above the car at one point? Yeah, the dress is, like, floating in the air above her before the mannequin is, like, standing next to her. And I was like, what the fuck? Like, yeah, that, that scene... 
And the thing is, then it cuts to black, and then we cut to um, someone answering the phone. This is the police answer right now, and it's like they're leaving a message to let Vincent know that his mom's dead. And then we smash cut to Babs and Reg. The thing is, is that escalated so intensely and so quickly that I was like, oh my God, I'm in. What the fuck is going to happen now? And then we cut to like the BBC remake of Mannequin 2 (laughs) with Reg Speaks and Babs. And I was like, what the fuck is like, it's all a, it's a goof. Just real quick before, before we launch into story B, I just wanted to say one more thing about uh, Sheila's storyline, if I might. Like we've been talking about, this movie is really very um, stylistic with the way it's shot. And for me, one of the best scenes of the movie is when Sheila actually tries on the dress. Do you guys remember that scene? When she goes into the room with all the mirrors and then they individually start lighting up and she's like kind of like spotlighted in this really dark room. Kind of like the scene is, I think, was supposed to portray like this is her becoming entranced or the connection to the her to the dresses being made. Yeah, no, definitely. It was gorgeous. This movie is shot so well at times. And that's that's what's so weird about it is like that. When she's putting on the dress, you're right. The way the the lights above her shine on her in each individual mirror was stunning. Like, it was so creepy. Like, you definitely felt that there was something powerful going on in that moment. Yeah, and then when she leaves the room, all the mirrors kind of blink out in the reverse order, too. Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, neat. (laughs) It was a very fancy dressing room. Uh, but I agree. This movie is shot amazingly, and like if the if it had just ended, imagine if this movie just faded to black, like with the dress hanging over the car, or maybe with that phone call to Vincent. It would have been like an amazing Black Mirror episode or something. I think the fact that it goes on for another forty five minutes is really why I lost what lost me. The second story, I just did not get into uh, at all. This first forty five minutes though were so engrossing. Yeah, it's it's incredibly intense and well done that first half and then the second half like almost I don't want to say it negates it, but it almost diminishes the the effort and the the work they put into ratcheting up the tension and making us like connect to this this fucked up dress situation. It's almost like they just kind of like, "Ah, don't worry about that. We're we're here to have a good time again." And it's like, "Wow." That it just felt very um disrespectful to Sheila and her story because she had been through so much like developing as a character just to have it almost thrown away. But um one thing we also have to talk talk about is after Sheila goes to the store and has that moment with the uh, the catalog, after Sheila leaves, the store clerk lady rips out that page, rolls it up and shoves it up in her fucking vagina like in the middle of the store during business hours. Yes. And uh, my wife was in the room when that scene was going on and she commented on that would be the most painful thing ever, <laughs> especially without an applicator. And I nodded my head and say, I don't understand, but I believe you. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I we were watching that and like I was watching it like the room was full of girls and like they're just all like, uh uh-uh. uh. Like they were all just like, nope. She shoves that like magazine, that catalog page um, just right up inside of her. And then I thought, oh, okay, that's like her taking some kind of power or no, it it felt like she was just using it as an extra pocket. I don't know why she did that. Like it was so pointless, but it was very like unnerving. Did she ever pull that back out later in the episode or the episode in the uh, movie that I missed? That's one of the deleted scenes for the extended cut, Garrett. So maybe uh, in a few years, we'll get to see that one. That's the spinoff movie. (laughs) Oh, and there was also that scene where Vincent like is drawing these like it's sometimes he's drawing and it's like a really good artist. Another time he has these sketches of like Gwen's like 
vagina and her breasts and stuff like that. And he's like literally just jerking off to his own art. And I don't know, as an artist, I can honestly say I've drawn some cool stuff. I've drawn some sexy things. I've never looked at my art and been like, yeah, I'm about to jack off to this shit right here. Like I've never done that. So it was so jarring to me. I was like, why dude, it's not even well done. Like, but yeah, like all that stuff was going on in the first half of this movie. So like, again, we've established that this is a bizarre, intense, creepy, super deep like storyline and then smash cut to Reg's story Reg and Babs this this second part of the film opens up we see the dress that was uh, eventually delivered to the thrift shop it is purchased by some unknown male who then takes it to what we find out is going to be Reggie's stag party before they get married it's their bachelor party for the night and he is going to make Reggie wear this dress throughout the entirety of the next 20 minutes because the scene went on for far too long. And I was just like, what is, why am I watching this right now? You know, still trying to come to grips that this is a new story. You can tell that Reggie is definitely not an alpha male. He's like a Zeta male or, or a, you know, whatever, whatever the last Greek letter is. It's Omega, isn't it? Omega? <laughs> it's Omega. Right, there it is. So he's, a, he's an Omega male, which actually sounds kind of cool when I say it out loud, but we know it's not. <laughs> yeah, he, so he puts on the dress. He's basically pushed around by these group of quote unquote friends um, while they're getting him drunk, he ends up puking outside in the street, and then he goes home with the red dress, right? And he wore it all night. Well, one of those dudes that he was out with was his father-in-law, <laughs> like the guy who like has his shirt open and starts like Hulk screaming at the sky as Reg is puking his guts out all over the street. That was the craziest shit. I was like, every I was like, be it uh, be it Alex were like. Yo, we'd hang out with that guy. Like that guy seems fun <laughs> at a party. Like we wouldn't want to live with him, but that guy seems fun at a party. <laughs> a bit, uh, maybe a bit too alpha for my taste, but he would be fun to get drunk with. You like your men a little more omega. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an omega man myself. Um, so we are introduced to his fiance Babs. You find out that their relationship has gone on since they were kids. I think they said they've been together for. 18 years or something crazy like that and i'm like you are just now getting married that's some like feet dragging if i ever heard it <laughs> well if you see reg he strikes me as a feet dragger <laughs> most definitely yeah he definitely yeah he's definitely led around through most of this movie by like the circumstances of other people's decision making by whoever is closest to him he's just like i'm gonna follow this guy's decision yeah <laughs> But we actually, we get a good taste of that is because after the stag party, she's like, I thought you weren't going to drink. He's like, I didn't drink. We just, uh, we just uh, ate too much food or, you know, we had bad Indian or something like that. I don't remember what he said, but like. He blamed it on like a bad enchilada. And it's like, dude, you are the worst liar ever. Plus, if you've been with someone for 18 years, like they're going to be able to see through your shit lie that you're hung over. Oh, and she totally knew, too. But like after that, we like realize she like is having to deal. She's dealing with the wedding. She hates dealing with the uh, the DJ and Reg is supposed to deal with it. But then we cut to them having sex and Reg is like on top of her from behind, like just going at it. And she is just talking. She's like, so do you think we should use it like so sad? Yeah, she's like, do you think we should use red or purple napkins? Do you think this? I don't want to have this blah blah blah. and reg is just doing his best to 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 get his nut man he's he's trying so hard and he's putting effort in and she is just the most disinterested having a conversation about anything other than getting fucked and i was sitting there i was like and y'all are about to get married i was like i don't know yeah i don't i don't think this has the legs to last boys he could have been like reading a book in that scene pretty much he was not engaged in uh in that activity at all 
She should have been reading the catalog from Stearns and Briggs. Oh, that would have been awesome. That would have been a great like connection. Like as she's flipping through the catalog and sees that red dress as she's getting boned by Reg from behind. Like that would have been a great little like connecting fiber to this overall plot line, but that's not what happens. So we we definitely get the hint that this is not the best relationship. We cut to the next scene where he's fixing a washing machine and it's at Vincent's place where Sheila used to live. Um, He's fixing that washing machine and then Gwen comes in and is all like, hey, what's up? Like, she's definitely trying to get this dude to fuck her. Like, she's trying to get Reg just to like plow her out. And um, he is just so like... He was like me when I was 18, just completely missing the the point altogether. <laughs> like just like, yeah, I love X-Men. Did you know that Cyclops and Jubilee actually went in an episode? You know, it's like and then like a girl could be naked and be like, you're gonna fuck me. And I'd be like, yo, did you actually know that Wolverine had a side issue? I mean, it was it's terrible. So anyway, he's talking about washing machines. <laughs> I think he got it. He just didn't know how to handle it. Oh, you think so? I, I he just seemed like he didn't he just didn't catch the 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 point that she was trying to get with it. It definitely took him a long time, but I think by the end, he had figured it out and was just so flustered he couldn't even like deal with what was happening in that situation <laughs> that's okay maybe maybe i missed that but yeah no i i saw a lot of uh i saw a lot of early garrett and reg at that moment i was all like yep poor reg i get you buddy no he just crumpled like every omega man crumples <laughs> <laughs> i want you to write a movie called the omega men but um yeah so he's there he's trying to like fix his washing machine and that's when we get our first glimpse of when he starts talking about the mechanics of a washing machine people start fucking getting off to like his voice and his words. Yes. And this is the one part of the film that I don't quite understand or really understand at all. I don't know if it's because he wore the dress or if he had some special power to begin with or what this was representing, but you're right. Anytime he starts getting technical and describing all the parts in the washing machine and how to repair it, the listener's eyes in the movie roll back in their head and they look like they're having a really good hypnotic orgasm or something. And I'm just like, what is happening? Does the movie ever explain this to us? No, it never does. And the thing is people actively like goad him into talking about that stuff. Cause they know they're about to get some, you know, like it's like when he meets with the, uh, the two bank guys and they're all the like two bobs. Yeah. It's like the office space is two bobs or the English version of. Yeah, exactly. They're like, well, why don't you, why don't you tell us about, I know you can't tell us about washing machines, but why don't you go ahead and tell us about washing machines? Uh, we might approve your loan if you do. And he's all like, it's probably a problem with the wigwag and it's rotational pull. Plungers on doors sometimes don't align with the seal, but the lid switch is often to blame. The inner tub might have sustained serious dents, resulting in the belt drive loosening or coming off. But that's usually a problem with older machines. The lid switch and its actuator, the motor coupler or door lock assembly are the first things to check when a new machine bypasses the spin cycle. The agitator drive shaft and spin tube linked to the transmission can come loose from the tub struts. If the helix doesn't release the and they both just like hold hands and act like they're coming together. It was like, again, what was the fucking point of this? Because again, we still don't know what's going on with the dress and Sheila. Yeah, well, the the, the dress is is in Babs's possession, right? So it's starting to do uh, here and there. You're going to see it moving around, kind of like it was at Sheila's house. But then um, they go to wash the dress, 
And then we get another issue with the washing machine where Reggie now has to fix his, his own washing machine. And I guess what I took away is that if you are a card-carrying washing machine repairman, you are not allowed to do any work outside of union regulations. That's correct. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. Basically, they paid for your training and for you to fix your own stuff and not pay the company or whoever. Basically, it's like you're, you're, you're stealing from them. You're using their investment for your own benefit. So yeah, you're not supposed to do that. Right. And so he gets caught. I don't exactly know how he gets caught. Does someone see him in his garage working on it or something like that? Who knows? It doesn't matter, right? But he gets caught and he's got to go talk to his boss. And at this point, we've been introduced to his boss one time. Is His boss is this character who does not utter one word, but has the most stern stare and he was upset that Reggie didn't invite him to the stag party and that scene is just him sitting in the chair just completely crumpling as the Omega Man do uh, in front of his boss's gaze and and I, I thought that was funny so here after he gets busted fixing his own machine his boss takes his repairman card and eats the fucking card in front of him while staring him down the whole time that is typical alpha behavior. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> eat that paper. Yeah, no, he like, and we say he eats the card. He literally chews it up and then swallows it. He eats this dude's ID card um, without saying a single word. And and honestly, like, I enjoyed that level of humor. I like, I enjoyed some of the humor of the Bobs, the uh, the store clerks, this boss. Um, I really thought that stuff was funny and worked well. But again, though. We've got Babs wearing the dress. They both have a little bit of the rash. She's obsessed with the fact that Babs thinks it's scabies because she mentions that like 40 times. Yeah, Is scabies a big problem in England? Because that would never cross my mind. If I thought of a hundred reasons for a rash, scabies would not be one of them. <laughs> I, I don't know. I can't answer that. Any of our British listeners want to chime in on that? Uh, please let us know. Is scabies a problem over there? Um, but she's going to, well, first off, she's upset that the dress fits him and her at the same time. Now I had a question about that. Does the dress change sizes because it fit Sheila at the beginning and then eventually she wanted to change it for a different size. Babs was upset that it fit her and her husband at the same exact thing. Now, was that her just being upset that her man was so skinny that he could fit in the same size dress that she could? Or was that the dress like changing sizes on everyone? Well, there was a scene in the movie where she goes and tries on the exact same size dress, but a different dress and it doesn't fit. Am I wrong? No, that's yeah, that exactly happens because I do. I think the dress just okay. changes size to whatever it needs to be to fit the person. Uh, and the tag might say 36, but really it's whatever needs to happen for it to fit. Okay, cool. I, just, I wanted to make sure on that because like, I was like, yo, there's no way. I was like, I know for a fact Sheila's like, and this is not an insult on Sheila, but like her stature and her size was like almost double that of Reg. And I was like, there's no way that dress fits both these people comfortably at all. So at this point, uh, the dress has killed Babs's bird. It basically goes over the birdcage. And then sucks the life out of um, the bird, which we saw earlier in part one. 
the dress gets laid on top of a, a basket of uh, fruit and vegetables. And when the, the dress is picked up, all the fruit and vegetables are like rotted and like deteriorated. So the dress sucks out life energy or something. But yeah, it kills. So we've seen the dress do some shit at this point. Mm-hmm. But then she goes to take it back to Carrie and Johnson's. And um, I think it's Hobbs and Shaw. I wish <laughs> I wish it was the rock in that wig being like, the nebulous of your mind has to grab. I was like, fuck yes. I would love that. Um, it's Statham and the rock and those wigs pretending to be the the, love the mannequin ladies. So she wears the dress into the shop and she's going to go buy a new dress. The The clerk lady runs up and is like, you have to, in her, her classic little like riddly language, is like, you have to leave because you're wearing that dress. And Babs is like, let me buy a dress and then I'll leave. And then problem solved. And they get into it. And I don't know exactly, was she mad that the dress was there or was she mad that someone else had the dress? I kind of took it as a combination of both. Like, we, this this dress can no longer be here. Perhaps it's even a little dangerous because they know, uh, you know, maybe the activation switch on the dress was already going and they just didn't want it back in the shop. Because ultimately what happens to the shop is caused by this sentient supernatural dress right so i think they were like this could cause trouble we don't want the trouble to happen here get it out of here take it home okay well let's let's say what happens real quick because i want to get into that that dress a little more um the the shop clerk goes and speaks to uh the old man the creepy old jerk off man they're like okay fine pick a dress and then you know get out of here and she's like okay no problem she takes a dress into the the changing room she tries that dress on puts the red dress on the floor and it like floats up or skitters out and then lands on a space heater, which is just completely next to the uh, changing rooms. Just no cover or anything like that. Catches on fire. The store then catches on fire. Looting ensues. All the women start beating the shit out of each other, taking whatever they can, taking pearls, shoes, dresses, you name it. Things are going nuts. The, The shopkeeper lady... Um, grabs one of the mannequins, goes back downstairs into their warehouse basement, gets in this dumb waiter elevator, and then starts going down. And we never know where. We've seen this before in the movie. She she curls up in like a little like fetal position in this dumb waiter elevator and goes down in the middle of nowhere. This time we watch her take a mannequin, get in this elevator, go all the way down. And then back upstairs, the building's burning down around everything. Babs is stuck inside. Reggie is sitting on his couch at home watching the most trippy LSD commercial for this boutique. And it ends up killing him right there on the couch. Right, he's he's in his house dying at the same time, which I assume is because the dress he wore the dress at some point, so he has to die also. Uh, yeah, I think so. So as Reggie dies, as Babs dies, as Sheila had died, we see the the weird hairless mannequin clerk lady going down the elevator and and almost like celluloid film cells. I can't remember the exact word, but like as she's going down, you see her like going past rooms that are just like these like 10 by 10 little like gray rooms with a sewing machine and red thread, the same red thread from the dress. And then you see Sheila like sewing the dress and then you go to the next floor down and then it's Babs sewing the dress. And then you go to the next and it's 
Reg sewing the dress. And then you get to the last one and it's an empty room. And then the movie ends. So just to amend that a little bit, the very first person you see is the model that wore the dress in the catalog. Oh, the one that was trampled by zebras. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Okay. So to to what the, what I took away from this scene is that, yes, the strange Mrs. Luckmore, the one with the strange way of speaking to everybody, she sees a mannequin that is damaged during the craziness and the looting of all the patrons in the shop, and she goes to it and starts consoling it. And I guess she was trying to save one of all the mannequins from burning to death. What I took away from that, to kind of tie back into we birthed the mannequin early in the movie, this is like the alien queen trying to protect its eggs from Ripley, right? <laughs> so I, I saw these mannequins as a potential vessel to be birthed. So she's like, I got to save one of these so I can restart in another shop, in another place, in another town, however the mysterious magic works. And in the same time, once you fall victim to the dress, you are there stuck in this weird cell of an afterlife or whatever magical supernatural thing this is. You're stuck there sewing more killer dresses, or it could be that you're building more life into the same red dress that's going to go kill later on, and then you're going to be attached to it and threaded to the dress in the afterlife. How'd I do? <laughs> I, think you, I think you definitely have nailed part of it. I mean, everything that you describe happens, yes, is legit, but I'm not sure, because the thing is, she says there, there's only one of those dresses. There's only going to ever be one, but they're all making a red dress themselves in different rooms. So are they all like weaving part of the same dress? And if so, how does that, I mean, I know I'm wanting details that don't necessarily have to be. So, so for me, I, I took that more of a symbolic image of the, the kills that the dress has, has gotten those souls or life forces are now completely intertwined or threaded quote unquote, to the, the fabric of the dress. So therefore, those life forces or kills that it gets might fuel the ability for the dress to keep itself pristine even when being burned down in a shop and they're continuing to thread and sew more dress. Does that make sense? Maybe there's just one dress on earth at a time. Like when the other dress was damaged, for example, they pulled one out of the stock room of these dresses. There could be a infinite number of dresses but only one is out and active at a time yeah but we also as they're sewing that we cut back upstairs to the burned down retail store and that dress is sitting on top of the charred rubble completely fine yeah do you think it sucks these people's life force to live on like you think it like kills these people so it can go on we're all just hypothetically just deciding what we think the, the ending means but yeah that's kind of how i saw it and then that empty cell that you you talked about means that it's not done there will be more victims yeah, I know. Uh, that's definitely what it was. Because, I mean, after we see that empty cell, we see the dress in pristine condition on top of the completely, like, ashed remains of everything at this store. Like, everything is gray and white, except for this red dress that the the fire department person picks up. But again, what, what's, the, what's the nature of this weird lady with the bald head and the old man who jerks off on mannequins? Like, what's their connection to this? Like... She's going down this elevator somewhere. Um, where is she going? I, I know I want answers to things that it's, it's supposed to be nebulous about. But again, 
you spent the first half of this movie building up this lore and this like concept of what this dress is and does just to completely abandon it halfway through the movie and then kind of bring it all back into the end and then kind of be like, cool, see ya. It's like, no, hold on a minute, man. You you wasted my hour and a half with like making me like follow this plot line and this story about a dress. What what's the point of the dress? Like, what are we here to do with this dress? And then it was like, yeah, don't worry about it. It's just, I don't know. It's a bait and switch. I'm not thrilled. I think maybe this is just supposed to be open-ended. I don't think they wanted to explain that portion of it to us. Um, maybe perhaps the dress was the boss of everything. Maybe maybe the shop exists solely to protect the dress. Maybe the dress is where it all comes down to. Maybe the dress birthed the mannequin people and... Uh, I don't know. Again, I'm just spitballing here, but um, but I don't know if I, I I actually need the answers for that for it to be successful. What do you think, John? Um, yeah. I mean, I wasn't necessarily upset that I didn't get all the answers, like to the lore of it. There's no good answers. Whatever backstory or lore they would have given us would have been lame anyway. So uh, it's probably for the best that they didn't even try. Well, I mean, that's. I, I, I know what you guys are saying, and I, I agree. Not everything needs a backstory. Not everything needs to be fully explained. And I'm completely fine with that. The problem is, though, is they didn't give me any kind of like, this is what this dress does. This is why this dress does it. Don't worry about where it came Like, I don't need the answers to worry about where it came from or who created it or yada, 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 as long as I know what the fuck it's here to do. Like, I, the thing is, is like, it literally is like, okay, it can kill people. But sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. Um, it's a curse. Maybe it kills anybody who wears it. Okay, I get that aspect of it. But again, then why did we need the the lady and the the mannequin ladies and the jerk off priest? You know, whatever the fuck he was. You know, like like why did we need any of that added on if I don't know what the hell that's all about? Are they loyal disciples? Are they all mannequins? Is this just like a a symbolic like play on capitalism like like you know like i don't know i have no idea what's going on and this is what a24 does i don't think we mentioned that it's an a24 film um they put out random shit and as you guys know oh a24 is so hit or miss for me like sometimes they they put stuff out and i'm just like i don't get it and this is just one of those ones i didn't get and it just i i was invested enough to want to know more and i got nothing and I, that leaves me that leaves me upset. Garrett needs a little more motivation behind his killer dresses. I get it. Well, they had Monty Python like <laughs> scene breaks. Remember when they like show like random ads and they'd have like the hand pop out and go Ree! and it was like if they had Monty Python animation in between scenes, I'd be like, yeah, I get it. But some of that stuff, I was like, I just didn't know what it wanted to be, and I feel like that's where it kind of lost me. I just I wanted to be involved with it, but it just didn't give me enough to cling on to. I can understand that. I um, I think we'd all kind of agree, though, that the grave mistake of this film was the tone shift. I think we all touched on it, how we didn't like it. I would have been fine with the ending if we'd maybe had Sheila for longer or we didn't focus on characters that um, I cared less for or was less invested in, kind of like John said. Um, and then the humor part of it, honestly, I could have, I would have preferred more of a straight, straightforward horror movie. Um, but I would still recommend it. I think there's enough in that first half that's enjoyable. And again, it's a beautiful movie to look at and the soundtrack is great. So I would recommend checking it out if you see it on a, on a streaming service. 
um, I, I think there's enough there to uh, enjoy. Uh, I mean, this movie is gorgeous. It had some incredible scenes um, that were like visually very uh, impressive. The cinematographer, the lighting, the color, everything was awesome. I just, I don't know. I just didn't care. I would not recommend it. I, I couldn't get into it personally. Um, yeah, that's where I land on this one. I would recommend it only to an Argento fan. Like if someone was looking for that style of film and they're like, oh, I wish there was more Suspiria. I wish there was more like, you know, like I'd be like, oh, you should check out In Fabric. I don't think it's a great film, but you might dig it. Like that's the only way I'd recommend this movie. Otherwise, I just, I don't know how I'd be in a situation where I could be like, you watch this instead of something better. Yeah, I would concur actually. If you really liked Suspiria or yeah, you're in for that vibe, uh, you'd probably like this movie more than I did. At least the first half is, uh, I don't know that anyone likes the second half. If you do, let me know. I'd want to know why. (laughs) It's all the Omega Men, man. They love the second half. (laughs) (laughs) Omega Men love watching other Omega Men. Finally, a Reg for me. (laughs) Do you know Reginald in your life? Then recommend the movie to him. Did this movie seem overly saturated to you as well? Were you getting that vibe? Oh, it definitely was. And that was that was not by accident. I mean, if you notice, like, every phone in the movie was red. The dress was red. Um, like, there was so many color choices. And, yes, it was very vibrant. Um, even at night when, um, when Sheila was driving down that dark road when she sees the mannequins. Like, as she passes the mannequin with, the, like, the red wig, that wig seemed like it definitely was like the color was pumped up on it. Like, and I loved that. I thought that made everything, it felt very dreamlike. And again, that's what this movie, it's like someone's like 17 pages of dream journals and each page is a different like story, like mashed into one. But yeah, no, it, it, it definitely heightened everything that happened in my opinion. Even the, the lucky restaurant. Did you notice how like the oranges and the blacks were like so like contrasting vibrant? It was really cool. Yeah, I think they definitely nailed it out of the park in terms of style. Just we find it a little lacking in tone, and uh, Garrett finds it a little lacking in, in uh, telling us what it wants us to, to think or, or give us a little more details on why what is happening is happening, it sounds like. Yeah, if I'm going to ride a bike, I need handlebars, so you got to give me something to grab onto. <laughs> very true. Unless you're very, unless you're skilled and can ride with no hands, some people know how to do that. Me can't do it. No, I'm too omega. I need, I need handlebars. <laughs> All right, well, listeners, have you seen In Fabric? Let us know what you think about it on our social media pages. You can find us at thegravetalk.com. We're also on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Drop us a line. You got any recommendations? You got any cold opens? Let us know. We're always happy to hear from you. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>